I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated myself. I see a great nation upon a great continent, blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Ratified. This is a live radio show that explores the intersection of policy and business. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I hope you like that super dramatic intro produced by our very own Tyler Kern, the soundbite surgeon here at MarketScale. Tyler's in the studio with me today, just helping produce the first episode as we get our sea legs. Um, but yeah, what I'm really excited about with this show is that, you know, as we've been building market scales presence in the radio world and, and developing our different shows, I realized we didn't really have a platform to discuss policy or to really dig into how regulations and how, um, different policy bills, um, you know, even um, things like tariffs, things like uh, dissection of trade dynamics affect our business day to day. And we do explore it in other aspects of our radio shows, but we don't really get that focused policy deep dive. And as I've entered the business world and the adult world, my personal view on politics has definitely expanded and grown, and I have personally just become way more invested in how it affects my day-to-day, and so I just wanted to put that passion to good work, I guess, and and connect how you know we see our policies and our governments, our you know, local, state, and federal, affect our business and our business day-to-days. So... That's why I wanted to get this show off the ground, and I'm looking forward to really digging into it with all of y'all. Um, you know, like you heard that soundbite, uh, I hope y'all learned something, but if you didn't, hey, at least I did. So, <laughs> what is coming up today? On today's first episode of Ratified, we're going to be discussing AB5. We're going to be chatting with Professor William B. Gold IV, fantastic name, by the way. Uh, Professor Gold is from the Stanford School of Law. We're also going to be chatting with Nicole Moore. She's a volunteer driver organizer with Rideshare Drivers United. So, what we want to do for the beginning of this show is give you a preamble. Very constitutional. That was another Tyler idea. I like that name. We're a, we're a team here. <laughs> we lock in the solid names and the solid puns. But with the preamble, I want to give you all the context, and I want to briefly, with Tyler, just run some, some main points by you, the audience, so that you feel prepared for these long-form conversations with some experts and some workers that are feeling the effects of the gig economy of driving for Uber and Lyft and for AB5. So, mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft, what, rideshare? What are we talking about? So, AB5 is a California Assembly Bill. It's called California Assembly Bill 5. It was signed into law on September 18th of 2019. And what this is, is an attempt by California State to limit the ability to classify workers as independent contractors versus classifying them as employees of a company. 
So Governor Gavin Newsom had this to say in his signing statement, quote, Assembly Bill 5 is landmark legislation for workers and our economy. It will help reduce worker misclassification, workers being wrongly classified as independent contractors rather than employees, which erodes basic worker protections like the minimum wage, PTO, and health insurance benefits, end quote. So this is a very interesting dynamic that uh, isn't totally new. Uh, We obviously have been dealing with contractors and subcontractors for a long time, um, and it's not like this bill is necessarily saying those need to go away, but what it is doing is it's really trying to hammer the new and prevailing gig economy that we've seen rise over the last several years and be embodied by uh, apps like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash, a lot of these delivery services. So why does California AB5 matter? Well, for a long time, gig workers have enjoyed that flexibility of part-time work like driving for Uber, but with that flexibility of being a contractor worker has also not necessarily given the assurances that come with being a real employee. Things like a minimum wage, unemployment insurance, paid family leave, paid sick leave, Plus, employers often pay 50% of Social Security tax, so uh, you don't have those benefits as an independent contractor, which isn't new for independent contractors, but uh, the prevailing workforce that has risen with Uber and Lyft has really drawn attention to this dynamic, which seems, at least in the eyes of many drivers, uh, seems to be keeping some basic worker rights from a lot of part-time and full-time Uber and Lyft drivers, as well as other gig workers, and we're going to get into that dynamic later. So Uber and Lyft are not going down easily. Uh, To them, a change like this could mean everything from an increase of $500 million in operating and labor costs to just a a general uh, restructuring of how they approach their business model. Uh, And this is not good news for Uber and Lyft because they are already bleeding cash. I mean, we're talking like blood flowing from an open wound. Things aren't really good quarter to quarter for these two companies. And, you know, they built their business structure that way with venture capitalists. They are, uh, you know, getting themselves off the ground, but they haven't really turned a profit yet. Lyft, for example, lost $650 million in Q2. Uber lost $5.2 billion in Q2. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, when you when you think about it. So, you know, $500 million in operating and labor costs sounds like a lot, but when you look at how much money they're already hemorrhaging, um, it really isn't that much of an increase considering they are already losing a ton, a ton of cash. And they've already expressed that they're not going to be complying with AB5. Uh, how? How can they maneuver this bill? Well, basically, they're claiming that their platform resembles Craigslist more than anything else. Basically, that it's a marketplace that allows for transactions between buyers and sellers, and that drivers don't classify as part of the company's, quote, usual course of business. And this is really a hill that the two companies are willing to die on, and they are either planning to negotiate with lawmakers to uh, push through this change, or in a kind of final uh final attempt at retaining the business model they've got now, 
they might spend millions fighting these consequences through a ballot initiative, which already has the support of Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. So there's a stringent legal battle that awaits for the future of California's gig economy, and the precedents could be set for how the gig economy functions across the nation. And AB5 goes into effect on January 1st, so we've got a little bit of downtime, but here uh, here coming very soon, we could see that legal battle start to kick into high gear. So what perspectives are we exploring today? First, we're going to be hearing from Nicole Moore. She is with Rideshare Drivers United, and she's going to give us the perspective of the driver, the worker, the activist that is on the ground, uh, you know, giving us the reasoning for the motivations behind uh, pushing for AB5, behind pushing Uber and Lyft to change their business models. Uh, and she's really going to give us um, some information about that fight from the ground to get AB5 passed and what this legal battle could look for for drivers and organizers moving forward. But we're also getting a very necessary legal look from Professor William Gold from uh, Stanford's School of Law. And he's going to be providing that necessary context on the dynamics of labor law in the United States and if Uber and Lyft's defense that drivers don't uh, don't make up part of the usual course of business for these businesses, if that defense holds water. And he's also going to give us his opinions on how he thinks AB5's implementation is going to play out. So we're going to go ahead and hear from Nicole Moore first. We spoke yesterday, so this is a pre-taped interview um, that I've slightly trimmed just for time. But I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nicole. She really gives the perspective from the ground and what RDU is doing uh, moving forward now that Uber and Lyft are saying they're really not wanting to comply with AB5. So how do people move forward? Here's Nicole. Here's our conversation. I'd like to welcome Nicole Moore. She is a driver organizer with Rideshare Drivers United. Being a driver organizer with RDU is a volunteer position. She's part of this movement that helped place pressure on Uber, Lyft, and California to act on AB5. And she's also been driving for Lyft part-time for two years. Nicole, how are you doing today? Oh, very good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us on the show. So you've been driving Lyft part-time for two years. Uh, during that time, how have you seen the you know Uber or Lyft company-to-driver dynamic change? Well, when I started, uh, you know, we, we were basically promised 80% of the fare. And it had been higher than that in the past. Um, and uh, who I was onboarded with was very apologetic about it. But within months after I started, um, there was no relationship to what uh, passengers paid and what drivers get paid. Um, it became straight mileage and straight um, time with some bonuses. And those bonuses have declined immensely over the last few years, in addition to mileage rates and time rates also um, going down. So uh, we were increasingly in a pressure cooker. Uh, we've been increasingly in a pressure cooker around, you know, uh, our pay, um, because you know we also pay for the fleet, right? It's, it's our cars, it's our insurance, uh, and all all those things are paid for by us. Um, it's easy to estimate. Oh, I put thirty dollars in the gas tank and. Um, you know, my insurance is this much per month, but the truth is our the valuation of our cars uh, goes down tremendously, especially for full-time drivers who do the majority of miles and rides. 
you know, within two years, uh, their car is worth nothing with way more than 100,000 miles on them, and they still have several years to pay the cars off. So, um, you know, we're really seeing, uh, you know, a bad uh, trajectory for our income and ability to stay in jobs like these. You know, often I feel like one of the arguments that's used for maintaining uh, the worker dynamic status quo that we see right now is that gig economy jobs, you know, the people that work in them are just doing it part time. They want the flexibility and it's okay if it pays a little less or doesn't have the benefits because it's just supplemental. Uh, You know, what I've seen from my research, um, which, you know, I'm not going to claim is super scientific, but just from reading up and engaging with this issue, uh, what it seems to be is kind of a misconception because much like the misconception that, um, minimum wage fast food positions only hire young teens. The reality is that often these kinds of positions become full-time positions for a lot of people that need a flexible uh, job, 40 to 50 to maybe even 60 hours a week of driving. So that argument doesn't always hold water. In your opinion, who are you really seeing driving and how much of that dynamic is just part-time supplemental versus people that are dedicating an entire career to this, basically driving, you know, 50, maybe even 60 hours a week. It's no doubt that there's a lot of part-time drivers and that's, that's true. And flexibility is important to part-time drivers, but it's also extremely important to full-time drivers. Flexibility is a big thing. Let me say though, that you, you don't need to exchange flexibility for basic labor rights. Minimum wage is not a high bar, uh, especially in an economy like Los Angeles, where I live. Um, you know, basically, uh, minimum wage is often poverty wages that will barely pay your rent. Uh, so, so you know, a low bar of minimum wage and, and labor rights um, is not something that you change for flexibility. Of course, the companies at this time um, can make all the decisions around flexibility. Well, we're able to turn off our, our apps or turn them on at any time and start driving. Um, the truth is uh, most of the people that I talk with who are full-time drivers don't have a choice but to work more than six days a week sometimes just to pay rent and put food on the table. So my question is, how flexible is that when you can't even consider, um, you know, taking time off from work for when you're when you're sick or your kid has something you want uh, they want you to go to because you're worried about uh, missing out on um, the good rides on Friday nights or Saturday nights or whatever it is. Uh, people get really locked into a schedule. But the companies are really using flexibility, uh, you know, kind of hanging it over our head as, you know, if you want labor rights, we're going to exchange that for flexibility. The truth is they want to maintain their flexibility on going lower and lower on the pay and, and using any model of exploitation of drivers that they can. Um, once we have employee rights, we also have the right to become unionized. And, uh, you know, right now, Right Here Drivers United, we're building our union statewide. Um, and when you have a union, when you, when you, uh, you, you know, the, the, the employer is obligated to negotiate a contract with you, we know that we will fight very hard for all the flexibility that we need. But on the other hand, we're not going to exchange that flexibility 
for basic labor standards uh, that people honestly need. You know, I have a colleague right now who is a full-time driver, and he became very sick with pneumonia, and he's been in the hospital uh, for a week and has been off of work for three weeks. He doesn't even have access to basic disability insurance because the the employer says, we're not an employer, you're an independent contractor, and they don't pay into SDI. And as a sole supporter for his family, and that's his only income, it's it's ridiculous um, to see people like this really struggling and having to set, set up things like GoFundMe pages because they get, you know, legitimately ill. You know, you speak to the flexibility argument. Uh, you know, Uber and Lyft, like you said, have already warned that they'll have to create scheduled shifts to approve uh, any kind of labor rights um, that uh, drivers might press on or that AB5 uh, compels them to push on, even though AB5 doesn't necessarily require any sort of actual change in flexibility. Let's say they actually comply with AB5 after the legal battle that I think everyone is keeping an eye on over the next several years. Do you think that they would be able to remove the flexibility from their model or is it a scare tactic or is it a bit of both? It's clearly a scare tactic. Uh, They have implemented minimum wage uh, type laws in uh, the New York City Uh, community of drivers and, uh, you know, folks still have their uh, flexibility. They're still able to turn on and turn off their apps. And when, you know, the companies have tried to fight back and take some of that away from them, um, you know, now they're, you know, the driver's organization is fighting back and counter uh, suing them for doing the wrong thing and um, winning in, in some of the cases. So, you know, this this is just, a, this is a threat and they're going to threaten everything. But you know when they're putting together coffers of like 110 thousand dollars but 110 million dollars to fight AB5 uh, in a ballot proposition uh, in, in 2020 you know that this is good for the companies and bad for us there's just no way that it's good for anybody in this equation and I'll say that you know uh, you know in addition the companies are also gouging the passengers. I'm hearing from passengers who paid $50 to get to the airport one way, but um, trying to get back home from the airport, sometimes they're paying $150, $180. And, you know, they're thinking, wow, the drivers must be doing okay. And drivers are reporting, no, from those very high cost rides, they're still only getting $30 or $40 from those rides. Um, These companies are out of control. And as much as they'll cry poverty in their you know, business ledgers that they're not making a profit, we know for a fact that uh, drivers in mature markets like L.A., San Francisco, and New York City are really creating hand over fist money for the companies. Um, and this is, uh, we're, you know, their biggest investors. We're, we're the investors they're also taking money from to uh, invest in other uh, you know, other markets, other products, and those kinds of things. But there is no doubt that they can shift their priorities to help 
drivers, uh, you know, make a basic living on this job. Uh, the way they've written the software from the very beginning um, is that they've incentivized people to work in certain times of the week, certain locations, and those kinds of things. Their entire algorithm is built around those incentives. And it doesn't make sense for them to become, you know, a shift working company. Uh, you know, I mean, even, uh, you know, flexibility is such a big thing. I mean, even uh, people I know who work for McDonald's now say that they're able to self-schedule, right? They just go in and they mark when they want to work. Um, you know, I think, you know, Lyft and Uber have a completely, uh, you know, complete system that's based on incentivizing when people work and where they work. And I don't see why that would change. It is a threat. So obviously Uber and Lyft are already putting up a fight um, and they're trying to buy time with litigation to either change course, to negotiate with California lawmakers, or if push comes to shove, to uh, go forward on that, you know, like you said, $90 million to $110 million ballot initiative. And this is leaving a lot of drivers uncertain on how to move forward exactly, because there are several different routes that you could take to you know, try and make Uber and Lyft comply here. So some are going for individual lawsuits, others are going to city attorneys, and unionization obviously isn't off the table either, so there's talks of sectoral bargaining, passing a state law to allow gig workers to form a union because of the the federal decision that says that um, gig workers cannot form a union. So what are the talks on the ground, and how are drivers and groups like RDU responding to this potential long-game legal battle? So the most important thing that we can do right now is get the company to comply with the law. And they're in a funny place because on one hand, they're saying the law doesn't apply to us. We're going to move forward as we always have on the 1st of January when the law becomes in effect. But on the other hand, they're putting together a ballot initiative to try to get Lyft and Uber drivers to be cut out of the law. So they can't make up their mind whether it applies to them or not. But, you know, I'll say that, you know, once they comply with employment and they're going to do that through legal strategies, they're going to do that because um, there will be a street fight. I mean, we we're going to continue to build power um, and we'll be able to strike for employment if we have to. We would rather not. Nobody wants to strike, but these companies have to be held accountable. Once we're recognized as employees under the NLRA, we are able to have a union and to go through the process of union recognition in which all drivers get to vote whether or not they want a union, right? Um, you know, the, 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 the memo that was released several months ago that you referred to was not actually a case. It was not a case decision. It was an opinion issued and has no bearing on when a group of employees come to them and say, we are here to um, petition for a union election. So uh, I just want to be clear that there, there is a pathway to unionization, but the first thing is that with a, a strong coalition of uh, principled existing unions, um, the new union that we're building, uh, you know, as well as, uh, you know, a, a huge bunch of politicians who understand what's going on, California is going to hold Lyft and Uber accountable. 
and we expect to win this fight, that we will be employees, and then we will unionize, and then we will fight for a contract. And in that contract is when we make sure that no matter what's happening, that we are fighting for and getting written language in a contract that's legally defensible around things like minimum wage, uh, um, you know, being the floor, and that we're going to pick ourselves off of the floor through wages that are fair and get us uh, somewhere further. We'll get places around flexibility, building real guaranteed rights around our flexibility as workers. That's what having a contract is. And there's no reason why, uh, you know, drivers, um, many of whom are full-time, as well as part-time employees. I love your uh, comparison of part-time worker workers to um, what we used to think is that McDonald's wouldn't really have to pay a living wage because it's just kids that work there. Well, we all know it's not just kids that work there, and the people who drive part-time actually are largely doing it, like I am, because I need extra money to pay uh, for my housing. Uh, so, uh, you know, most of us doing this work, whether full-time or part-time, are the people that have been thrown out of the rest of the economy. Um, you know, and we need to be able to have a job that is fulfilling, you know, our income needs in addition to the other rights that we need. So per the unionization conversation, I know that there have been internal uh, conflicts or just general um, conflict on decision making on how to move forward with exactly what kind of union to create? Do you start by integrating yourself into another union like Teamsters or like SEIU? Uh, Do you create your own union? Uh, Do you create multiple unions? Um, Has there been kind of a a consensus of leadership and a consensus of drivers that say, this is how we want to move forward. You know, we want to either incorporate ourselves with another union or we want to create our own union. How do you foresee that playing out? At Rideshare Drivers United, we've been very clear that we're, we want an organization and our union to be driver-led for drivers and made up of drivers. So that's very clear to us. We want to make sure that there's no backroom deals being made that would cost us anything to do with our basic labor rights, including the right to unionize. Um, So, you know, in terms of drivers leading, um, that's really important to us. And, you know, the truth is we can build our own union and become recognized as a union as drivers. I mean, we're not dumb either. We also know that when, you know, some of the biggest and most powerful and rich organizations in the world are building coffers up, you know, over $100 million to fight our efforts, that we need to partner with people who, um, you know, and organizations that have more uh Uh, established resources and that kind of thing. I mean, right now we're working really closely with Transport Workers Union that has been organizing across the country, um, you know, other 
uh, scooter maintenance workers and stuff like that have have traditionally uh, represented transportation workers. Um, we are we're working closely with the Taxi Workers Alliance in New York City that has done tremendous work bringing taxi and rideshare drivers together in unity and fighting for their rights in New York City. And we've seen some great regulation come out of there. So we're working closely with other organizations. It would be the members of RDU's decision to affiliate officially with another union. Um, and you know we're not at that place right now, but we're definitely partnering with organized labor. Um, so, uh, so that's that's what I can say about that. I mean, ultimately, drivers will have a decision whether or not to have a union. Um, we don't believe that you know if somebody with a, sign, a signature and a pen can you know represent. Um, a bunch of drivers um, without drivers having a voice in that process. And we will fight for drivers' voices. So again, that was Nicole Moore, volunteer driver organizer for RDU. There was another question that we didn't get to there uh, where I asked her about uh, you know, basically not every single driver is on board with AB5. Uh, there are plenty of articles that uh, express concerns from drivers that either, you know, they don't want anything to do with something that might change their flexibility. They don't want anything to do with something that could make them more ingrained with Uber and Lyft. They, you know, aren't super happy with them anyways, so they don't really want to be employees of Uber and Lyft. Uh, and you know, her response was that obviously they don't want to make any decisions for anyone else. Um, but to that extent, she also said that she doesn't want to, you know, allow for drivers and, um, you know, gig workers that have expressed concern to be left on the sidelines. So it, it's a very nuanced battle, um, and one that doesn't really have a, a clear, oh, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. Um, because there are plenty of drivers that really don't want anything that could potentially jeopardize their flexible income that they have with uh, Uber. And, you know, there was one quote in a um, in an L.A. magazine. I don't remember the exact name of it, but basically one driver said, you know, hey, uh, everyone who rides Uber, or excuse me, everyone that drives Uber and Lyft knows if you're not doing 50 to 60 hours a week, you know, you're not really making a ton of money. Um, and, you know, I, I think when I personally hear things like that, it's like, okay, do you need to be working 50 to 60 hours a week to make a livable wage or an income that supplements you as a worker? Um, and I think that is the battle that people like Nicole and RDU are fighting because I think in their eyes, they would say, no, we don't need to work 50 to 60 hours a week to live uh, comfortably or normally in L.A. or wherever else. Um, and, you know, therefore, they want to move forward with this. So I want to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Professor William Gould. And he is a Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at the Stanford Law School. So we will be hearing from him here in a second. We'll take a quick break. Be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? 
MarketScale's Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, so again, I would like to welcome Professor William B. Gould IV. He is a Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford's Law School. He was a chairman of the National Labor Regulations Board from 94 to 98. And he was also chairman of the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board from 2014 to 2017. He's also author of A Primer on American Labor Law. A sixth edition was released in 2019. Professor Gould, great to have you on. How are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? I'm great. Thank you again for your time. And I'm looking forward to digging into this topic and getting your legal and expert perspective on AB5 and the gig worker dynamic. So to start off, I want to give our listeners some context. Could you give us a brief history or summary of the dynamics between contract workers and employers in America and how that has recently manifested into the prevailing gig economy that we now hear so much about? Well, the dynamics are that uh, uh, employees are covered by, for the most part, by basic uh, labor law and by social security law. Uh, uh, employees, uh, uh, of course, have the uh, right to uh, have minimum wages, maximum hours. Uh, they have uh, social security. They have uh, uh, unemployment compensation. Uh, they have, uh, through Obamacare, some measure of uh, protection for uh, on, on uh, medical insurance. They have workers' compensation that protects them in connection with disabilities uh, that are injuries that are incurred on the uh, job. And, of course, anti-discrimination law, as well as uh, the National Labor Relations Act itself, which protects uh, all employees and their right to uh, engage in uh, collective bargaining and to select a representative of their own choosing. Uh, independent contractors have none of these things. Uh, it was not always uh, this way. The United States Supreme Court uh, in the early 1940s, in a case in case involving Hearst newspapers, uh, had held that uh, the question of whether an individual was an employee uh, dependent upon uh, really the economic realities to the extent to which that individual was dependent uh, upon the uh, employer. The 80th Congress, um, which in, in, uh, which uh, was elected in 1946, um, passed uh, the so-called Taft-Hartley amendments to the National Labor Relations Act, which for the first time carved out explicitly, uh, insofar as uh, federal labor law is concerned, a, uh, a, an exception to uh, labor law coverage for independent contractors. Uh, various states, either through statute or through um, uh, judicial decision, have uh, uh, recognized a demarcation line between independent contractors and employees for their own 
state law statutes uh, uh, on a wide variety of employee employment benefits. Again, the basic uh, demarcation line is uh, uh, is one which uh, allows employees to have a wide variety of benefits, independent contractors to have none. Um, the uh, uh, the business of uh, uh, the independent contractor problem, of course, arose, as I've already indicated, far in advance of the advent of the so-called gig economy. Uh, uh, in the early 70s, uh, the trucking industry in particular, uh, at the time of deregulation, began to reclassify a lot of truckers uh, as uh, – independent contractors rather than employees. Many of these truckers now have uh, bought their own uh, rigs. Uh, the same was true of taxi drivers. Uh, probably uh, a majority of taxi drivers through the, through the country are uh, now regarded as independent contractors because the uh, NLRB, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, of which I was chairman in the 1980s, uh, interpreted the statute so as to exclude them is, as well. It is a growing phenomenon uh, that uh, has now been uh, uh, furthered by the uh, advent of the of the gig economy, and uh, if it is a uh, and the number of so-called misclassification suits uh, being brought have uh, uh, increased uh, exponentially. As uh, as as our as inequality in our society has uh, in, has increased, uh, it is generally thought that uh, uh, the independent contractor classification is one of the major factors in uh, the gap between those who have and those who uh, uh, have not. Um, so um, that basically is. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the overview. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, there are people who work autonomously, and of course, uh, truly autonomously. Uh, and uh, uh, for instance, I write articles for newspapers. Uh, um, uh, I'm a law professor here, but I, I write the occasional uh, uh, article for newspapers. No one would suggest that I'm an employee of the uh, newspaper. I uh, these are my own views that I. Uh, shape and, and have published. So AB5, like Governor Newsom put it, uh, is a bold step, definitely, um, regardless of, of an opinion on it. It is a bold step in reclassifying gig workers in California. And one of the main provisions for making AB5 uh, actually have any effect is the ABC test that was initially established under the Dynamex ruling. So the ABC test is basically saying that workers are employees if A, they perform tasks under their company's control, B, if the work is part of the company's, quote, usual course of business, and C, if there aren't any independent enterprises in that trade. So in this ABC test, I've seen a lot of pushback from people on the B provision here, that you know, enforcing yeah. this rule that work is part of the company's, quote, usual course of business uh, would kill most gig businesses. Uh, what are your thoughts on the reach and the width of the, the net that this bill is casting with that B provision? 
Well, there's no doubt that uh, B is the most uh, important and uh, sweeping uh, part of the bill. Uh, uh, the um, the ABC test was really devised uh, outside of California and other jurisdictions like uh, Massachusetts and New Jersey uh, because uh, uh, the the uh, in part uh, if the for two reasons. One was that uh, uh, the previously existing criteria were uh, were vague, and uh, it, there are many different factors uh, that uh, both federal and state law uh, had to be relied upon to determine which side you were on. Um, and it was thought that uh, uh, the vagueness of the criteria uh, invited litigation in the courts. And of course, uh, whenever that happens, those who don't have resources uh, to uh, litigate are at a uh, considerable disadvantage. Uh, the other part of this was that uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, by putting forward a, a straightforward uh, criterion, um, the uh, uh, employ, employers uh, could be required to uh, recognize their workers and employees where uh, they were performing uh, the core of the uh, the business. So that, for instance, Uber and Lyft, um, uh, the uh, their drivers uh, for uh, the company, the company is maintaining, no, we're not in the business of transportation. They're not performing their, our core function. We're in the business of providing a platform for algorithms to be transmitted to these drivers. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, we're not covered by this, uh, this law. Well, of course, you know, this doesn't really pass the smile test, uh, the laugh test. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, they are in the business of uh, transportation. There are many other businesses as well. Uh, and the question is, are 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 the functions of the drivers in this case part of their core their core uh, the, the essence of their business I, I think most people will say the courts will say um, uh, the public would say that uh, this is the essence of their uh, business uh, I think that uh, on balance uh, the ABC test makes a lot of sense uh, the problem is it doesn't uh, fit everybody. Uh, there have been numerous exemptions uh, carved out and uh, to the statute, uh, and uh, which, as you point out, uh, reflects what our California Supreme Court decided uh, in early uh, 2018. The legislature was really trying to uh, to um, uh, give some practical grounding to what the Supreme Court of California had already decreed a year and a half earlier. You know, you, you brought this up. I'm glad you did. But, um, you know, Uber and Lyft are using B as their defense. Um, like you said, claiming that drivers yeah. are not part of their usual course of business. And their defense has definitely been met with amusement, befuddlement by some. Uh, because, yeah, like like you said, they're claiming that they're a digital marketplace instead of an employer of drivers and that they're more like a Craigslist than, uh, you know, any sort of actual functional um, platform 
for providing rides. Instead, they're you know giving uh, they're opening the door for buyers and sellers to interact. So this has been met, like I said, with amusement and befuddlement from labor workers, activists, many drivers themselves. Uh, do you share that reaction? Do you think this is an appropriate course of action? for Uber and Lyft uh, as they try to deal with what AB5 could mean for their businesses? No, I, I, I think that this is, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, this is, uh, lawyers are paid to argue points. Uh, uh, this is really, um, uh, this is really a rather strained and uh, silly point. Um, I, I, I don't think it, uh, uh, effect and I, I think the most people react uh, uh, the way that I do but uh, this this just simply doesn't make sense we know that it, uber is in the business of providing transportation and we know that the drivers are uh, are providing uh, transportation services for them uh, the uh, uh, and also uh, there's a great deal of control. Uh, as well that the uh, that these companies exercise uh, over these drivers uh, uh, they um, uh, are not uh, uh, many workers are compensated while they are waiting for uh, uh, have to be on call for work uh, uh, this is not the case uh, with these drivers they don't uh, start to be compensated until actually uh, the work appears. Uh, for a while, they were prohibited from having tips. That that was a public relations, I think, uh, mis uh, misfire, and so uh, they they changed that. The question of whether they can continue to work for this particular company depends upon uh, whether they are deactivated, not dismissed or disciplined. But the de- the word, the magic word is deactivated. Uh, and uh, they and only they uh, decide that. That means that uh, uh, the driver is excluded from work. There are various incentives to uh, try to steer drivers toward particular areas at particular times uh, through their uh, bonus system. So there are a wide variety. Not only are they uh, uh, in the business of uh, transportation, but also there are a wide variety of mechanisms that they utilize to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, prompt uh, these drivers to do what they would like them to do. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's that's all well and good. An employer uh, should be able to do that kind of thing. But uh, it, it smacks of many of these factors smack of uh, the employee uh, uh, status rather than an independent contract. You see, we've gone through. An enormous change in our society um, uh, since I first start, started practicing labor law in the uh, 1960s. Uh, when I first started practicing labor law, uh, many employers prohibited their workers from working for other employers. They didn't want their employees to moonlight. The companies uh, demanded loyalty from their employees, and the employees, in turn, uh, received some measure of loyalty from the company through a wide variety of uh, uh, fringe benefits. Uh, I always like to say that um, 
you know, when I was chairman of the NLRB, we had a case before the Supreme Court where uh, the company was maintaining that uh, workers were not employees because they were paid by the union when they were on the company, came to work for the company. You know, they paid by the union to organize the employees. The interesting thing about that case was the company could have said, hey, we don't want employees to be moonlighting for anybody, and we want complete loyalty. That's what they were saying in the 60s. But what has happened is we are uh, we have moved into, in substantial measure, a two-job, three-job economy where employees have to uh, stra- scrape by to um, – uh, you know, to earn uh, a, a living. Now, of course, the drivers uh, are a disparate group, uh, and uh, uh, Uber and Lyft, uh, in their attempt to reverse AB5 here in California, have have highlighted and publicized uh, some drivers who don't like AB5 uh, because uh, AB5 because they uh, they are um, uh, they they want to work. Uh, a few hours. They, 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 the company's uh, the company has maintained that the AB5 will eliminate the flexibility that uh, workers have in their dealings. So mm-hmm. there's nothing about AB5 that mandates the elimination of flexibility. But the company has uh, put that prospect out there in front of the drivers and said, you know, if you if this is what comes to pass, uh, this is what. Um, uh, you're going to be you're going to be faced with so that there are many people who are uh, in the situation part time students, uh, uh, full time students, retirees who want to work a few bucks. Uh, maybe on the retirees maybe want to work on the weekends and supplement uh, uh, something that they have. But there are also uh, people who are uh, in the uh, minimum wage. Uh, uh, situations or who would be in minimum wage situations if uh, if they did uh, uh, something else. And uh, those uh, people are in uh, uh, the practical equivalent of, uh, you know, the average employee who wants to, who uses this work to get by. Some of them working as much as 50, 60 hours a week. So, uh, Professor Gould, uh, Basically, what we're seeing here is Uber and Lyft are not planning on cooperating with AB5 uh, until they really have to. Um, you know what? That's correct. What we're seeing is, I, I mean, I, I think most people see uh, Uber and Lyft's defense here of uh, Part B of that ABC test as difficult to wrap your mind around because they their whole business platform is providing rides and so saying that drivers are not part of their usual course of business um, you know it, from just a logical perspective doesn't make a lot of sense but I think from a political move it makes sense because they're really trying to buy time through litigation um, and yes. give, give themselves time to create an alternate path forward whether that means um, uh, pushing for the ballot initiative that they've already spent millions on with uh, you know Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. It could also be renegotiating with California lawmakers to find a middle ground, such as okay, yes, we'll grant yes. we'll grant minimum wage, but we don't actually want employment status. Um, 
how do you foresee this legal battle playing out? Do you think it's going to be more uh, individual lawsuits? Do you think it's going to be uh, city attorneys that have the most success in the public courts? Uh, do you think it's going to be pushed to arbitration as much as possible because of the agreement that drivers sign up for, that they're going to resolve these disputes in private arbitration? Um, do you think unionization and... Uh, uh, union leaders going to the table with Uber and Lyft is going to have the strongest effect. How do you see this whole legal battle playing out? Because there's so many different avenues that it could go down. You, you're asking me a, a large number of questions. Here. Oh, Let yeah. Me <laughs> yeah it's... Let me try to deal with them one by one. Cool. Uh, uh, one, one question you raise is... Uh, uh, Will there be litigation? Yes, there will be and already is, uh, even though the statute itself uh, becomes uh, uh, effective uh, only in the uh, new year. But uh, the, uh, the the Supreme Court decision is already on the books. Uh, the other the, now, what will happen? Will they will this? Uh, there is uh, lying in the background the. Federal Arbitration Act of 1925, which has, uh, with which the Supreme Court is uh, infatuated uh, and which the court has used to uh, divert uh, many employment law actions uh, into employer-promulgated and controlled uh, arbitration systems. Uh, I gave a speech last week where I said that uh, you know, the employers, with the use of these new called uh, the so-called arbitration systems, are giving arbitration a bad name because arbitration used to be resort to an independent third party chosen by both sides. Well, this isn't uh, uh, this isn't that. Uh, the uh, uh, this is uh, a a system as, as Justice Ginsburg said in dissenting in a recent case. This is unbargained for arbitration. There's no bargain. Uh, it's simply imposed. Now, um, there there are uh, uh, exceptions to the Federal Arbitration Act. Uh, it may be that one of them lies in uh, connection with uh, actions brought by city attorneys, uh, by mm -hmm. public officials, as the as AP. Uh, provide, provides for. Uh, there is some indicate there is, there are holdings by the California Supreme Court in cases in which the United States Supreme Court has denied certiorari. Uh, that's uh, not a ruling on its merits, but simply the court, for for any number of reasons, didn't want to uh, hear the case where uh, uh, where public officials have brought uh, suits in. Um, uh, in California, uh, uh, a so-called uh, public, uh, so-called private attorney general uh, acts, uh, PAGA, we call it, uh, where the court has held, our courts have held here in California, that there is no arbitration uh, requirement, and the matter can go directly to the court. So we'll have to see um, whether uh, that that proves to be the case. Another. Another thing, I don't want to overload you with too much information here, but uh, another exception to the Federal Arbitration Act 
uh, exists if, uh, in the case of so-called transportation employees. Uh, well, again, these drivers are transportation employees, but thus far, the courts have seemed to assume that even though uh, uh, ride-hailing uh, drivers are covered by the statute, uh, there is a prerequisite that those uh, drivers thus far uh, be themselves in interstate commerce. So we had an action brought uh, in New Jersey the other day where the Court of Appeals said that, uh, yeah, they're not covered by the Federal Arbitration Act because they're transport, transportation employees who are acting in interstate commerce because they're taking their their rides uh, back and forth across the river between New Jersey and New York. Uh, well, uh, not all of our drivers in California, and I would suspect the drivers in Texas, if you have this kind of uh, statute ultimately in Texas, are, are going to uh, fall uh, into uh, that kind of uh, fact situation. So that's one thing. Now, uh, you've asked... Uh, let me. You asked a number of questions here. Yeah, here. Well, you know, we're 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 here. we're running low on time, so let me just kind of refocus the second half <laughs> of that question. Um, yeah. Really, yeah. really, I guess I just wanted to get your perspective on which of the different legal battles you think is going to uh, either be most effective or most frequent or common in this um, legal battle that we are going to see pan out over the next several years. I was just wondering if well, you think. Well, I it, think that. No, yeah, go go ahead. The companies, as you've indicated earlier, companies, as you indicated earlier, are um, uh, tr- trying to get this on the ballot. Um, they're trying to get uh, AB five uh, uh, reversed on the ballot, and uh, they're putting uh, ninety million dollars into a campaign in uh, twenty twenty. Um, uh, well, I, I, you know, it's hard to. Uh, uh, I don't think any polling has been done on this because. Uh, only on uh, October 29 did they announce their strategy and and they are providing for uh, goodies that uh, resemble what employees have. Like, for instance, uh, you know, the drivers, if you're an independent contractor, you don't get reimbursed for anything, for your car, for your expenses, for your... So now they're, they're saying, hey, you know, if you'll reverse, you, Mr. Voter, will reverse through at the ballot AB5, um... Uh, we'll give the drivers 30 cents a mile uh, for gas and other expenses. Uh, they say adjusted a- uh, annual for inflation. Well, you know, uh, most people who are reimbursed get, uh, you know, 50 cents, uh, uh, almost double what they're, you know. So they're putting forward a wide variety of uh, uh, of things like uh, uh they're saying that we're going to we're going to agree not to we're going to agree that these workers should be bound by antitrust law. They should have uh, uh, some measure of health insurance, which they have. They have zip now. They have nothing whatsoever now. And we're going to guarantee that they will that if drivers drive 25 hours a week, that they will uh, uh, be uh, uh, at, a, I think, 30 percent above the minimum minimum wage. Uh, so that's one what they're trying to do also simultaneously is to um, get the legislature to um, uh, act on this in the early part of 2020 before a ballot measure comes forward. And one thing that is really lurking in the background is the question of union representation. 
for these workers because the National Labor Relations Board has excluded these drivers from coverage. It is generally thought uh, that um, California could assume uh, labor relations jurisdiction uh, over the drivers. We could have a national. We could have a labor relations act here in California for uh, these guys and others who are excluded from the. Uh, from from the uh, statute, uh, there are also antitrust problems involving uh, these drivers because uh, 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 you know the antitrust laws. If if you're not an employee and if you're an independent contractor or something else created by the statute, uh, our laws, uh, both at the federal and state level, prohibit people from conspiring to fix prices. Well, prices here are wages. and um, uh, But uh, we have an opinion here from the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, which has said that uh, there is a, a so-called exemption from the antitrust law, an exception to the antitrust law, which would allow California to promote the collective bargaining for drivers without violating antitrust. And that same decision said that uh, we could do it uh, without mm-hmm. violating the, uh, the uh, federal labor law as well. So there's going to be – they're going to try to hold out, I think, the employers, the prospect of some form of voice for the drivers. Uh, uh, they have circulated a bill uh, which they want to have uh, introduced uh, – uh, we don't have time to discuss uh, uh, most or all of this in, in a program like this, but one thing is very clear to me, and that is that the bill that they put forward uh, appears to allow for, for incentivized employer control of uh, worker voice. Right. Uh, you know, in New York City, they, they agreed to a union, but the employer said, uh, uh, you can, Uber said, you can only uh, dispute the things that we want you to be able to dispute, and we'll decide uh, what those things are and how they're going to be uh, resolved. Uh, so, Professor Gould, sorry to, to sorry to cut you off here, but we are out of time here. But I want to thank you so much yes. for for giving your insight here. Again, we've been chatting with Professor Gould. Uh, a professor of law at Stanford Law School. Thank you so much for breaking down the legal aspects of this entire conversation, uh, and it was a pleasure getting your insights here. We'll definitely have to bring you back on to continue to dive into um, some more uh, some more just labor law in general, um, but then also this bill that you were bringing up here at the end. I think we could definitely use a whole conversation just on that one. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So quick final thoughts here. Um, or we ran over time per usual. T, you know, look, I'm I'm sorry, man. I just I'm a I'm a talker, and I I bring talkers on the show. You got a lot to say, man. Yeah, sorry about it. So you know, things we didn't get to bring up with Professor Gould. Um, you know, one of the major costs for Uber and Lyft is employee retention. If you look at the last statistics that we have on this, which are just 2017, when rates were much higher than they are now. Even then, retention rates for drivers who stayed more than a year was a staggering 4%. So, very low. People do not 
stay driving with Uber and Lyft very long. So could AB5 create more retention and could that be a positive for Uber and Lyft? I think that's an important aspect of this year that doesn't get brought up a lot is, you know, to Uber and Lyft, AB5 is seen as a nightmare uh, and presented often as a nightmare. It's, you know, it's a total transformation of their um, their gig platform. But uh, really, it could be a positive if you see it from that perspective. And uh, I think we're just going to have to keep our ear to the ground per usual, see how rideshare drivers united, how unions, how the legal battles play out, uh, and see how Uber and Lyft continue to respond to you know their claim that they don't fit into B of that ABC test, which most people read and say that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see if this is the hill they really want to die on or if they're going to shift their game and their focus here and maybe try to comply, but, you know, find a middle ground. So thank you all for listening to Ratified today. Uh, we will continue to develop this show. We will be on Tuesdays. Um, the plan right now is probably an hour show on Tuesdays. We might condense it to half an hour depending on the content, but obviously we'll let you know before you listen in. So thanks again. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thank you for listening to Ratified, an intersection on policy and business. Adios. We'll see you next time.